So now we're going to look at verse 8, and uh, here it is, um, on, on the screen as well. And this is another surprising verse where Peter speaks about, peop- he's, he's writing to people and, and saying to them that they love Jesus even though they, they haven't seen him and currently don't see him. And he talks about how this faith and love in Jesus leads to an, a joy that is really indescribable. And um, actually, there's a theme of joy running all the way through these early verses in 1 Peter. We were thinking last week about verse 6, as we said, where he talks about, in this you greatly rejoice. And then when he gets to verse 8, he talks about this inexpressible, inexpressible and glorious joy. So there's a theme here of, of joy one, one of uh, the commentators that I was reading was reminding me, we've been looking at this in our growth groups of uh, Luke chapter 15, where you'll know there that Jesus tells a number of stories. The one that we've been particularly looking at is the story of the prodigal son. But in every one of those stories, there's something that's lost and someone goes out to find what's lost. And when they find the lost thing, in the first story, it's a lost sheep. Then there's a woman who loses a coin. And in the last story, it's about two sons who are both lost in different ways, as we've been thinking about in our growth groups. But when the person finds what is lost, how do they feel? What's the note in that chapter? They call their neighbours and have a party. Every one of them, when they find what was lost, they're, they're overjoyed. And there's a note there. This, this is really about salvation, isn't it? What was lost being found again and the, and the whole subject of joy. Jesus said in that chapter there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's salvation he's talking about and that's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the joy of knowing God because of what Jesus has done for us. Those who are lost being found and brought into relationship with God. And that is a joy that isn't dependent on circumstances. Happiness depends on circumstances. But joy is something far deeper and more solid and lasting. And that's why Paul, can, uh, Peter here, I'm going to keep saying Paul, Peter here can speak about joy and pain in the same sentence. And we're going to think about this idea of faith and love and joy. Let me uh, begin by showing you a t-shirt I came across this week. Um, this is what it says on the t-shirt words are but wind but seeing is believing have you ever, ever heard that phrase seeing is believing maybe the first bit you haven't heard but we've all heard that phrase haven't we seeing is believing I want to ask you this morning do you think that that's true Because in this verse, these people had not seen, and yet they believed. But this is a very common thing that we hear people say, isn't it? Seeing is believing. I want to try and unpick this with you. I think there are two different groups of people who would understand this statement, seeing is believing, differently. And uh, the first group is a group that we might say are sympathetic to the view that faith is a desirable thing. 
And um, I think that this statement, seeing is believing, can be a big problem to people who really see faith as a desirable thing. I, I talk to a lot of people, and sometimes people say to me, I'd love to believe. I want to believe. I just don't know how to get hold of what it is that I need to get hold of. I don't know. How can I get hold of Jesus? Other people seem to get it. And I can see that there's a value in this. In fact, I would say I I understand these things in my head and I feel quite envious of people who seem to have such a strong faith. But I don't know how to get hold of Jesus. He lived 2,000 years ago. And he lived very far away from where I live. I wish I could have heard him speak. I wish I could have heard him tell those teachings and parables. I wish I could have been there on the hillside above Galilee and hear it with my own ears. I wish I could have seen some of the things that he did. If I could have been there in those crowds and seen the way he healed people who were sick, the way he opened the eyes of people who'd been born blind, the way that he called to a man who'd been in the tomb for three or four days and said, Lazarus, come out. If I'd been there and seen these things with my own eyes and heard them with my own ears, I would have immediately knelt down in front of Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. I wish I could have seen these things. For some people, I think it can be a matter of feelings. Some people that I talk to, maybe you can identify with this. Um, I understand all about Jesus and I, I can appreciate all the things that you've been telling me about how Jesus came and died. The problem is, I don't feel anything. I don't feel something. Do, what, what, what does it need for me to be a Christian? Do I need to feel some sort of warm glow? Do, will God strike me with some sort of lightning bolt that will make me like one of those ready brick characters and there will be kind of a ring of warmth around me? I understand it in my head, but I'm waiting for something to zap me. I don't feel anything. And that can be a real issue. I wish I could. But so far that's not been my experience. I want to believe but something's missing. So that, that's one group. Seeing is believing. There's one group where faith is a desirable thing who could see this statement as a real you know, issue. I wish I could have seen. There's another group though who think faith is absolutely useless. And... Uh, This statement, seeing is believing, is one of the reasons why they think that faith should almost be banned. I think this is a large group, you know, in our modern culture. And this is the scientific age, isn't it? There are people who will tell you, you mustn't believe anything that you can't prove scientifically. Seeing is believing. If you can't prove it scientifically, don't go anywhere near those people. Faith, it should be banned. I was reading of a student who asked his Christian teacher, or said to his Christian teacher, if you can show me God, I'll believe in him. 
It's the same sentiment. That's the cry of our culture, isn't it? I won't believe it until I can see it with my own eyes. We don't like to go in for myths and legends. We want hard facts and evidence. And Christianity, to some people's mind, doesn't seem to have any of that. And therefore, it's only for gullible people who have kind of left their brains behind. You can't expect me to believe in Jesus, can you? In 2010? In Rotherham? You've got to be kidding. That's just for the gullible. I'm not part of that crew. Seeing is believing. Well, you know what that sounds like. We're bombarded with that sort of stuff all the time, aren't we? In the last few years, there's been a number of writers who have become hugely popular as they explain from their atheistic viewpoint all of this to us mere simpletons. And uh, these atheistic, enlightened people... Richard Dawkins wrote a book uh, a few years ago now called The God Delusion. He begins with the idea that it's, it's permissible for you to throw off all this stuff. Uh, people feel that they should believe, but he, he opens his book by saying that you, you don't need to believe. What a liberating truth that is. You don't have to believe. It's okay not to believe. You don't need to feel guilty. And life will make sense when you throw faith off. And he spends the rest of the book working out how that, uh, play, that should play out. Here's a quote from Richard Dawkins. This is what he says. Faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. There's another very aggressive uh, atheistic writer called Christopher Hitchens. He said this, what can be asserted without proof can be dismissed without proof. What he means there is, don't even try to argue with these silly Christians. They can't prove it, so you should just dismiss them immediately. Fighting talk. This verse that we're considering this morning then is very relevant, isn't it? Seeing is believing. Is that really true? Here's a part of the Bible that was written by an eyewitness of Jesus to people who had never seen Jesus and he says that even though they'd never seen him they love him. And even though they didn't see him now they put their trust in him. And because of that they had this amazing indescribable joy. Even more than this, Peter says, their experience stood the test of the brutal realities that they faced in the culture that they lived in. Their circumstances, though desperate at times, could not crush this sense of faith and love and joy. The interesting thing for these atheistic uh, writers, is that 2,000 years later, this is true for Christian believers now. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You don't see him with your physical eyes, but you trust him and believe in him. One uh, Christian writer says this, I think this is a great quote, there is nothing else 
in all the world parallel to that strange, deep, personal attachment which fills millions of hearts to this man who died 1900 years ago and which is utterly unlike the feelings that any men have to any other great names of the past to love someone unseen is a paradox which is really realised only in the relation of the Christian soul to Jesus Christ but this strange love which is kindled by an unseen man does not need his visible presence in order to be a fountain of joy unspeakable and full of glory the apostle Peter takes it for granted that everyone who believes knows what this joy is and it's a challenge as well he goes on to say it's a large assumption contradicted I'm afraid by the average experience of the people who in this day call themselves Christians we'll come back to that comment it's a challenge that this should be our experience and often we betray it uh, when it isn't our experience this strange love kindled by an unseen man I wonder whether you've ever wondered as you read passages like this why these writers seem I mean when you write a letter to someone you know you generally say how are you and then you wait for a letter for them to explain what their experience is but Peter writes here and he tells them what their experience is doesn't he has that ever struck you as unusual he writes to tell them how they're feeling have you ever noticed that in the Bible why is that well he, he writes that way because he knows that to some degree it's true for them But I think what he's really doing is setting out the norm, isn't he? He's really trying to describe to them what normal Christianity should look like. He's putting a stake in the ground with his big mallet and saying, if you're a believer, this is what it should be like for you. And he's describing what normal Christianity should be. I was reading uh, John Piper on this and he made me think a lot about cultural influence on this so I think I was talking to some of you this week about this he uses the example of a river flowing and the current you know is very strong I don't know did you see in the news this week that story of three Americans who were rescued from the top of a waterfall do you see that and uh, they must have been this river had overflowed it had rained and they were messing around obviously swimming in the river and they literally got swept to the edge of the waterfall and this guy was stood there on the end of the waterfall holding two other people and the fire brigade had to come and throw lines and let the river wash the lines and then one by one they pulled them to safety and they didn't go over the waterfall but the current had had washed them right to the brink of this big waterfall Piper was uh, commenting that that is what it's like living in this world the current sweeps us along and the thing is about being in the river compared to other people it doesn't look like we're moving does it? We're not moving faster than anybody else or lagging behind. The whole river's moving. And the only way that you can tell that you're moving is if you keep your eye on the bank. And if someone drives a big flag in the bank, you can tell then how far you've moved from where you should be by looking at the bank. That's what Peter's doing here. Our whole culture is moving in one direction. And what we need to do often is come back to the flag on the bank which is the Bible, the Word of God. And only then will we see how far we've moved. 
Peter is saying, this is normal Christianity. Have you floated downstream from this? Or is this your experience? What Peter is describing here is not gullibility or foolishness or wishful thinking, but normal Christian living. So, we're going to have a little think about this phrase, seen as believing. And I want to try and show you that it isn't true and it isn't as plausible as it first seems. And then we're going to get into what this verse really means for us and take some challenges away. So I want to say to this one that seeing is not believing on the base of this verse. And I want us to just look at some facts to help us think through this. And we're going to just think about Jesus. Here's my first thing. You might be surprised at some of this, I don't know. The truth is, the vast majority of people who did see Jesus with their physical eyes didn't believe in him. So what makes us think or hope that if only we'd seen him, we would believe? Are we any better than the vast masses of people who did see Jesus but did not believe in him? What is it that makes us think that that would be true? There were many people who saw the things Jesus did and heard the things that Jesus said and it did not lead them to believe in him. They were intrigued by him. That's a good thing. Many, of, many people were impressed by him. That's a good thing. Many people, if they were honest, could not find any real fault with him. That is a good thing. But in the end, the vast majority did not believe in him. We could go to the cross, couldn't we? And see Jesus lifted up to die and crowds walking past the foot of the cross and saying, mockingly, if you are the Christ, save yourself and come down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. The vast majority of people, there was no outcry when Jesus was crucified. Many, many people had seen the things he did and said and it did not lead them to put their trust in Jesus. I've touched there on the second reason as well. I actually think that seeing Jesus would possibly have not been a help to faith, but a hindrance. What an amazing thing for a Christian to say. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you're a fan of Doctor Who. I'm not really, but I've seen it and I know what it is, obviously. He has a TARDIS box, doesn't he? And uh, it's a time machine. And uh, just imagine if we had a TARDIS box here and I said to you, we're going to go back in history. We're going to go and get into this TARDIS machine and we're going to go right back in history to see the most important person who ever walks the face of the planet. He is the king over all other kings and we're going to go back in time to see him. Jump in, come on. So we jump in the TARDIS box, we close the door and there's that horrible music and that kind of thing that looks like a washing machine that used to scare me when I was a child. Ooh. It's, uh, I, I used to hide behind the sofa when Doctor Who came on. It's, uh, I'm, I'm not scared now, obviously I've grown up. But um, So we get the music and the washing machine goes on and we go back in time and the time machine lands with a bump in a garden. 
And the door opens and we step outside and it's evening. It's dark. And as our eyes get accustomed to the light, we're very excited to see the most important person who's ever walked the face of the planet. This great king. And from one side of the garden we see a group of soldiers with lanterns. And they're walking quite purposefully across this garden. And our eyes range across and there's another group, a smaller group of men. And as the soldiers approach this second group, one of these men, who seems to be the leader in this group, steps forward. And the soldiers grab hold of him and they frog march him away. This second group, they flee. This man is taken away and all through the night he's passed between different politicians. They ask him loads of questions and by the morning they strip him and tie his hands to a pillar and they flog him until his back is ploughed and bleeding. Then amazingly the soldiers give him the crossbeam of a cross to carry and the soldiers lead him out of the city through the wall and up onto a small hill outside Jerusalem and there they nail him to this crossbeam and lift it up drop it into a socket and hang him up to die now you tell me seeing that with your own eyes would that be a help to your faith or a hindrance would you say wow this man must be the king. I think that would be a stumbling block to your faith, don't you? I think sometimes we don't appreciate what we say when we say, if only I could have seen. Would seeing that have led you to trust him? I think you would have gone home very confused. And you can jump back in the TARDIS box now and come back to Rotherham. We're back here now in 2010 seeing all of this would not help you to believe but be a hindrance the Bible says in the book of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament that there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering so my point to you is if you were going to believe in this man You would need to see something else, wouldn't you? Beyond what you see with your physical eyes, you would need to see something with the eyes of your heart and with the eyes of your soul if you are really going to trust in this man. So I put it to you that seeing is not believing. We need to see something beyond what we can see with our physical eyes and see something else that is really there but that is only perceived with the eyes of our hearts. That's why this verse hangs true. They hadn't seen him and yet they loved him because the eyes of their heart were opened to see something beyond just the physical. Maybe you know this Bible secret that actually the truth is that no one can see what is really there unless the living God 
opens the eyes of their heart to see beyond the physical, to perceive who Jesus really is and what he came into this world to achieve. This kind of Bible faith does not come naturally. But the great encouragement of the Bible is that God can and has and is and does reveal himself to, to human beings opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see what is really there. We could go to Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember the account when Jesus got his disciples together and he said, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? And the disciples looked at each other and they said, Well, some people say that you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Some people say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated in some way and then Jesus goes for the jugular and he says to his disciples what about you who do you say that I am and Peter ever the spokesman for the rest of the group he says you are the Christ the son of the living God this man is a carpenter from Nazareth you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says something very profound to him. And he says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter could see, but he only could see, because God had opened his eyes to see what was really there. And that's the experience of every true Christian as well as these Christians in this chapter that we're looking at. I'm thinking also of Thomas. You remember Thomas? Poor old doubting Thomas. Everyone's heard of Thomas, haven't they? Jesus appears to all the disciples and we don't know where Thomas was. Maybe he was at home moping. I don't know. Maybe he was shopping. All the disciples are there. Thomas misses out. Jesus appears to them. And when they tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord, Thomas says, no way, you're all mad. I'm not, I don't believe you. It's not just one of them, all of them have seen Jesus. Thomas, you've got to believe us, why would we lie to you? I won't believe it, I'm not believing it. And he says very famously, unless I can put my finger in where the nails went in his hands, and put my hand in where the spear went in his side, I will not believe it unless I see it. Seeing is believing. What a week that must have been for Thomas. They must have drove him mad. All through that week, Thomas, you've got to believe. I don't believe. Thomas. They must have had so many discussions and fallouts and arguments. And the following week, Jesus appears to them and Thomas is there. And Jesus very gently says to him, Thomas, here I am. You can put your fingers in the wounds. Thomas doesn't need to. But has it ever struck you what he said? What Thomas sees with his eyes is a man alive in front of him. But he kneels down in front of Jesus and what he actually says is, my Lord and my God. His eyes are open not just to see a man before him alive, but to see authority and power and divine power there in front of him Jesus the Lord the Son of God my Lord and my God 
And Jesus says, which is relevant to this verse, blessed are those who don't see, who yet believe. So, I don't think seeing is believing. It doesn't work that way from a Bible point of view. And then we can get back to our verse here. Here's a little uh, diagram, I suppose. It's very simple. That speaks about faith and love and joy. Here's the verse again, verse 8. You've got it there in front of you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I just want to say uh, a few things with, with this kind of little diagram in mind. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter doesn't attempt to minimise this idea of dealing with the unseen, but his emphasis is on the object of that unseen love and faith. Is, is, uh, the object of all of these verses is Jesus Christ. That's the issue. This isn't gullibility or blind faith. This is all focused and centred on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The object of our faith and love and joy is Jesus. He is the preeminent one in this passage. Just uh, two or three quick things. Um, I want to point out first the connection between love and faith. I don't know what you think about this as we sort of drill down into it. Peter had seen Jesus, but the people he's writing to are just like us. They've never seen Jesus. They've not heard him with their ears. And yet Peter says... Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. I think the point that Peter's making here is that you have heard enough about Jesus to lead you to admire and respect him and to be amazed at him and yes, even to love him. I think when Peter talks about loving Jesus, he's speaking about the fact that these people count Jesus as precious and desirable in his character. They've seen something in Jesus that leads them to their hearts go out to Jesus in admiration and affection and love because his character is altogether lovely. So the love side of that equation is about character. When Peter talks about believing in Jesus or trusting in Jesus, that's a slightly different thing, isn't it? That's not so much about character, but about ability. What they have heard about Jesus has led them to believe that Jesus is reliable and consistent and that he is able to do exactly what he promises to be able to do. So the idea of love is about character and the idea of trust is really about ability. And they have heard enough about Jesus to lead them to admire his character and to trust themselves to him that he will do for them what he promises to do for them. So love is attracted to him because of who he is and what he's like. And faith is attracted to him because of what he can do and what he will do. 
Can you see the difference between those two? And they've heard enough about Jesus in the gospel for their hearts to rise up in love and trust toward Jesus. The second thing that we could say on that basis is that true faith then is never dry or cold, is it? It isn't as these atheistic writers would lead us to believe wishful thinking. It isn't confused. It isn't gullible or foolish. True faith lays hold of Jesus. True faith sees Christ who he is, what he's like, all that he's done and promises to do, and it takes hold of that and responds to that gladly by saying, Jesus is mine. He is what he is, and he does what he does, in a very real sense, for me personally. And my faith lays hold of Jesus. That isn't blind faith. That is focused faith. It centres on a living person. Jesus, the Son of God. And Peter says here that that faith and love that lays hold of Jesus leads to a joy that cannot be explained or spoken, that is real and deep and lasting and good. This faith kindles love in the heart towards Jesus and a joy that is indescribable. When, when I was a teenager, we sometimes went to summer camps. Some of you have been on summer camps. Some of you have been leaders on summer camps. And I remember as a teenager, one of the songs that we used to sing was a little chorus. And it was called, If You Know The Lord. Some of you older Christians might know that song. It's not one that we sing maybe now. I won't crack the windows by singing it for you. But uh, it goes like this. If you know the Lord, you need nobody else. If you know the Lord, you need nobody else. He, um, I can't remember all the words just now. I should have written them all down. I did during the week. He'll see you through the darkest night. And, that the, and, and the whole refrain all the way through the song is, If you know the Lord. If you know the Lord. Christians talk about knowing the Lord. And this is what these people would have talked about. They, they, they hadn't seen him, but they knew in a real sense the Lord. Their hearts went out to him in love and faith and in joy. You might say, that's not enough for me, I need more proof. This, I, I, I can't prove this to you scientifically. These people couldn't prove this to you or to anyone scientifically. But this is millions of people's experience to know the Lord. Uh, it's, it's a bit twee, but this is true, isn't it, in the realm of work. I, I used to work down the pit, as you know. And I can remember going down the pit and working with men who were strong men. Who knew what it was to do physical, manual labour. I still remember as an 18 year old what it was to carry those girders uh, in three pieces and connect them together to make the roadways as the roadways were going and they'd pick them up as though they were made of chocolate you know and carry them along and uh, a, a very hard working group of men but now and again the conversation would go to people who were described as pen pushers people like accountants or doctors and you might hear the comment 
never done a day's work in their life. And why is that? Because everything that they do is physical. They think that's the only kind of work that there is. But I can tell you since, I, I know what it is to grapple with numbers and finance and feel like you're doing a big Sudoku puzzle. And I can say that at the end of all that, I can feel tired in a way that is sometimes more profound than if I've gone out and done a day's physical work. So even though it's mental, sometimes emotional, it's no less real, is it? Than someone who's done physical work. It's not true to say that it's only what you can see is the only thing that's real. Sometimes it's inside, isn't it? It's true in the realm of pain. How often do we sympathise with someone who's got a broken leg? Oh, it must be awful. But isn't it so true that emotional pain, a broken heart, mental issues are just as real as physical issues. You'll know that if you've suffered in that way. You can't say that people who suffer in that way are just being foolish or gullible. It's real. And so when you look at this diagram, people can dismiss it and say it's foolish and gullible to talk of knowing the Lord. But just because it isn't visible doesn't mean it's any the less real. Spiritual issues are real. And it is possible for us to love Jesus even though we don't see him with our physical eyes. I think there's a real chance for us here, isn't there? Do you remember that uh, letter in Revelation? Well, seven letters to seven churches. There's one letter to the church at Ephesus. Do you remember that one? And John there dictating the words of Jesus to this church in Ephesus. Jesus commends them very, very strongly. I know your good deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and you've tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't and found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Oh, is there anything else that they could have done? And what does Jesus say? I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Oh, how easy it is in a Christian life. We do all the right things. We're so diligent in dotting all the I's and crossing the T's. And we've forgotten verses like this one that remind us that the most important thing is that our hearts are drawn out in love and faith and joy to Jesus. I wonder whether maybe you've forgotten your first love Maybe you've been busy doing instead of loving. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to fall into that trap. So the connection between love and trust we've seen, the fact that true faith is not dry or cold, but alive and warm. The third thing I want to say is from this verse is that faith is necessary for our joy. Even in the midst of trials and difficulties, faith is the key to our joy. One Christian writer says this, Yesterday's faith will not contribute to today's gladness. 
any more than yesterday's meals will satisfy today's hunger. Oh, it would be great if you could do that, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be so big then. If yesterday's food could satisfy me today, it would be so much slimmer. It doesn't work like that, does it? He goes on to say, present joy depends on present faith. And the measure of the one is the measure of the other. Peter here takes in all the burdens and the pains and the anxieties and the harassments and the losses and the bleeding hearts and the cares that can burden any and every one of us and he says in spite of all of them rejoice rejoice faith is necessary for our joy well we're almost done we're not going to be here long I want to ask you this morning we've talked about different kinds of people and their approach this whole idea of seeing is believing how is it that you can get hold of Jesus how is it that you can be joined to him and benefit from all that he is and wants to bring to your life that's the question of someone who's anxious, isn't it? How can I, I'm, I really want to believe? How is it? What is the secret of getting near to Jesus and getting hold of him? Well, we've seen very clearly that it isn't seeing him with our eyes. It is perceiving him with our hearts. And I want to say to you that it is really the word of God that is the key to our faith. And maybe this is another thing to say that's quite shocking, I don't know. But maybe I can say it this way, that the Gospels that we have, the Word of God that we have in our hands, in a very real sense, is better than actually being there. In a sense, if I'd been there, I would have been distracted by all the surroundings. I would have struggled to take it all in. But God has given to us and to all people his own perfect description of Jesus, his life and death. In the Gospels we can read of Jesus in a way that is better than being there. We can enter into all the private conversations he had with his disciples. We can see not just snatches of things here and there, but taking the whole scale and sweep of the kind of person he was, the life he lived, the things he said, the work he did. And it is the word of God as it's given to us by God himself that causes our hearts to rise up in love and faith and joy towards him. If your faith and love and joy is shallow, it is because you're not feeding in the words that God has given to you. This is your soul food. Like physical food for your body. God has given us his word. To stimulate and encourage and inspire. Our faith and love and joy. And if we neglect his word. It won't be long before these verses. It won't be long before the stakes on the bank. And we floated way downstream. And left that reality behind. 
And we need to turn around and swim upstream. Come back to God's word. Come back to Jesus. And pray that the Spirit of God would stimulate our love and joy and faith in him. Well, let me leave you with three things. Maybe some of you this morning uh, have no faith as we've been describing it in Jesus yet. I want to say to you that you can believe in Jesus. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to go to a particular place or shrine. You don't need to wear a particular set of clothes. You don't need to sit in a particular position. You don't need to kneel or stand or do anything. What you need to do is come and lay hold on him by faith. Right where you are. To see his character. And to see and perceive what he has done for you. Particularly in coming from heaven into this world. To lay down his life. So that you could be forgiven and brought into the family of God. Faith in Jesus is not something that's automatic. You have to express and exert your heart to lay hold of him by faith. To go to him by faith right where you are. To believe in him. Some of you, I know, do believe in Jesus. Like these people, Peter could write to you and say, though you have not seen him, you love him. I know that it ebbs and flows. To you, I want to say that you need to cultivate a relationship with Jesus. It takes time. It takes effort. You need to be in God's word. You need to be trusting him. You need to be spending time with him. You cannot afford to allow the busyness of life to squeeze out the time that you spend with Jesus. Your Christian life will wither and die if that's the case. No relationship can survive unless both parties are spending time together. And I want to challenge you this morning. If you want to be um, demonstrate the reality of these verses, you need to cultivate that faith and love and joy by spending time with Jesus. And the third thing is a challenge. I want to say this as we close. That it is impossible to know the reality of these verses if there is sin and disobedience in your life. Christian people cannot be happy unless they are living to please Jesus. Your love for Jesus will not flourish if you are living in a way that doesn't please him. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That isn't to earn your salvation. That isn't a legalistic thing. Sometimes I think we go really sloppy on this, you know. We're going to talk about this as we go through 1 Peter. I've said this to some of you during the week. Sometimes we so love to look cool as Christians. We've been forgiven. We're children of God. We're free. And we can use that as an excuse for not being serious in our pursuit of holiness and godliness. 
because we don't want to look like we're being legalistic or we don't want to be too serious people think we're being legalistic Jesus said if you love me you will obey me and I've got to say to you as a minister of the gospel you can't live like Peter describes here if you are holding on to things that you know displease him so you need to believe in him lay hold on him you need to cultivate a relationship with him and you need to live in obedience to him so that your faith and love and joy will flourish and that these stakes in the ground, this normal Christianity that Peter describes will be true for you. Seeing is believing or not, as the case may be. Well, I hope these ver- this verse is true for all of you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen.